from the National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. The German bishops met this week expecting to vote on the controversial statutes of the German Synodal Way, but the vote didn't happen thanks to the Vatican's intervention. Does this effectively derail the progressive agenda being pushed by the German Synodal Way? CNA Deutsch Editor-in-Chief A.C. Wimmer reports the story. Then we look at the influential role of women in the Catholic Church. No, not in the German Church today, or no, not in the U.S. parish or diocesan life, or even at the Vatican, but we look all the way back to the Middle Ages, and we see the feminine genus at work more than a thousand years ago. The Register's European correspondent, Solène Tadier joins us. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register and your host here of Register Radio. I'm joined by my co-host Matthew Bunsen, who is EWTN News' Vice President and Editorial Director. We're sitting together, which is unusual, uh, in the Guadalupe Radio Studio at EWTN News' Washington Bureau. We've also got A.C. Vimmer with us, which is just even more of a delight because there are three of us in the same room. This is is a splendidly European episode of Register Radio. uh, That's true. We have Selene and Christophe. It's a a treasure to be here together. And, of course, there was a bit of news this week. Um, We're talking about... uh, uh, women in the life of the church in the next segment, but this one is based on on some news that just happened. Uh, basically, the Central Committee of German Catholics, a, a lay-run lobby group, if you want, um, had previously approved the statutes of the German Synodal Way last November. Uh, and the bishops, the German bishops who were meeting in their spring uh, plenary session, were expected to discuss and to vote on those this week. And that didn't happen. And so... A.C. Vimmer, we're very happy um, to have you here to talk about this news because it's a bit confusing as to why it didn't happen. We, we do know that uh, the bishops received a letter from the Vatican asking them not to vote. Um, what were they going to vote on and what happened? Yeah. First off, pleasure to be here and in person. I'm really enjoying that. Thank you so much. Um, Look, the situation is a bit complicated. You're right. So the German Synodal Way, which has been going on since 2019, is meant to be turned into a kind of permanent body to oversee the church in Germany. And that is, it's going to be called the Synodal Council, is meant to be brought about using the statutes of a synodal committee. It's all done with a lot of German thoroughness. (laughs) And the issue around that, of course, is that the Vatican has intervened repeatedly, has now said, look, if you're going to do that, you're really crossing a kind of red line here. And it is in particular within the the sacramental structure of the church that that red red line is to be found. And interventions have come not only from the Vatican, of course, and concerned bishops around the world, but now two very important German-language cardinals who are not necessarily considered the most conservative either, which Mm -hmm. is Cardinal Christoph Schoenborn, Archbishop of Vienna, and Walter Kasper, well-known theologian and advisor to Pope Francis. So that shows you that really, you know, what's at stake here is a huge concern, not only to the Pope, to the Vatican and the global church, but even those who are perhaps reform-minded bishops. And really one of the things they're saying, just to kind of put a point on, on something you said, is all of this criticism or all of the Vatican's intervention has basically been to say, this isn't your domain. Uh, German church, you cannot decide a new church structure. 
Uh, and Indeed. that's an, an important point. We're not actually talking about hot button issues uh, related to, to social issues of our day. This is actually something even more fundamental. And that's important for us to really grasp because we've heard the arguments over, you know, women in the church or, um, you know, same-sex blessings, which we've been talking about ad nauseum for, for, for months now. Uh, this is fundamentally about the structure of the church, and that is very important for us to recognize. So the question becomes, was this intervention a hard stop? Uh, where is this going? Is this just a pause in, in the efforts of... Uh, the German Synodal Way. Spot on. I think that really is the question. Because as you said, you know, what's at stake here really is the overall process. You've got this ecclesiologically baffling model of a non-synod, a synodal way. And the question really is, why did the German bishops depart on that particular, down that particular path all those years ago? And where are they going to really end up? If this is a stay, if this is a, a sort of a reprieve, from a process that will still take place, which I think a lot of observers are expecting, mm. the German bishops and the Central Committee of German Catholics that you mentioned, I think are still going to try and pursue those objectives, then there will be at stake what was you know, started not only many years ago, but also several million dollars ago. Wow. At some estimates, certainly more than five million dollars ago. And with a lot of contentious stuff coming up that perhaps has been brought to light, but not really been found to be acceptable to a lot of Catholics, but perhaps even more bafflingly or alarmingly, was not really in the interest to a majority of German Catholics, because according to some surveys, they were not really interested in this kind of process. And of course, as Pope Francis has raised, the process itself, this in a way, was not about evangelization, the one thing that he really wanted them to do in the letter that he wrote to the German Catholics back in 2019. You're telling me this is driven by some elites? <laughs> well, we're listening to the Holy Father's words, aren't we? I mean, he has brought that up, but yes. So that is one of the most pronounced and arguably hard to refute criticisms, of yeah, course. Yeah, the Holy Father's use the phrase, it is elitist and unhelpful. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you use the phrase, though, that this is similar to something that uh, Goethe the, uh, and the Sorcerer's Apprentice. What did you mean by that? Yeah. So for those who don't know Goethe's poem about the Sorcerer's Apprentice, they might know the famous movie by Disney, Fantasia. <laughs> it's based on that story and with Mickey Mouse being the sorcerer, which is a wonderful story. But yeah, That might be an appropriate analogy here. I, I'd like to think so, really. Uh, <laughs> the Mickey Mouse part Ouch. in particular. <laughs> that too, yes. Take it for, <laughs> for what you will. The, so the sorcerer's apprentice, he, you know, he calls on the ghosts that he can no longer then contain. So it's about creating a circumstance within which you find yourself afterwards that you cannot control. The German bishops might well reflect on that being the case right now, given the partnership that they've started with the Central Committee of German Catholics, that lay body, which is very powerful, but also made up of, yes, very important, some might say elitist functionaries, in particular professional politicians, reflecting some of the social and political landscape of the Federal Republic of Germany, for all these sort of you know, problems that might throw up. You know, we're talking about the challenge of a church state relationship. We're talking about the whole complicated history of German politics and church relationships, the concordats, the church tax system, all of that plays into this here. And that is why Pope Francis and others have said this in particular should have been addressed from the outset and is dangling over the whole thing just as it has all along, like a Damocles sword. 
This is Register Radio. We're on EWTN, and we are talking. I'm Jeanette DeMello, and I'm with Matthew Bunsen and A.C. Vimmer, and we are talking about the German bishops uh, who were expected to vote on uh, some of the statutes of the German Synodal Way, uh, particularly uh, the Synodal Council, this permanent body that would take over uh, governance of the German church. Uh, And the Vatican put a stop to it, and there were two... Uh, prominent church figures, um, longtime uh, church figures, uh, who spoke out. Uh, you mentioned them before, Cardinal Casper and uh, Car- Cardinal Schoenborn. What did they have to say? Why are they speaking up now? Have they spoken out before? So I think the, the more alarming, perhaps, uh, words that were used by Cardinal Schoenborn, namely threat of a schism of division, mm-hmm which also Pope Francis has raised, and of course a number of the other critics that we've heard throughout the years, may even pale in comparison to the kind of language that we saw from Cardinal Caspar and have seen for a number of years, in particular when it comes to the word synodal council, because Cardinal Caspar pointed out in earlier criticisms that council in German Rat, the synodaler Rat is the expression, is the same word that you would use for a Soviet. That also means council. And he clearly alludes hereby, of course, to a structure that is not commensurate with the sacramental structure of the church, but also in particular has a sort of totalitarian flavor to it. Interesting. So that is, you know, a very strong criticism from someone who otherwise has been very supportive of some of the reform points that have been raised, not only through the synodal way, but also through the pontificate, throughout the pontificate, in Amoris Laetitia and in other documents. You know, it's interesting um, because that's not the way uh, you really hear those of the of the German, I forget the name here, but the German Committee of Lay, of lay Catholics yes. who've been spearheading that. That's not the way that they usually talk about it. You know, they make it sound as though this is, is coming from the people, that this is a way of, um, like, decentralizing uh, the church um, so that it can be more in touch with where people are. But then you hear this criticism from a German cardinal who says, no, this actually does have um, a totalitarian stance to it, um, emphasis to it. How can you make sense of that to us? What right. is this this disconnect here? Well, I'm afraid I really can't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, but, um, you know, the, the, the baffling side of it, of course, is as you, as you said to your point, Jeanette, there is a number of issues here that have been brought to light that have been discussed, for instance, also at the Synod of Synodality of the Church in Rome, the Bishop's Synod, um, with a view to the role of women in church, something you'll be hearing more about in today's program, with a view to some of the participation of lay people in, in the structures of the church. Um, the question is, why has it run afoul uh, of things because of this process? really raises the question that I sort of alluded to before. Why did they go about coming up with this process sui generis? Why did they marry the German bishops, that is, the process to the Central Committee and its efforts? There may have well been an opportunity here that may well have been, in fact, squandered for reform orientation. And some of the supporters of changes have pointed out that, you know, we're kind of losing sight of what we want to achieve. Now, look, there's a lot of rhetoric, there's a lot of semantic around semantics around the, the sort of resolutions that have been passed, the debates that have been taken, have taken place at these assemblies uh, that were part of the synodal way. So there have been efforts to justify it as something that may be you know, evangelizing or otherwise relevant. 
But the premise on which it was originally based, and I think that's a very important point, is an abuse study, and a study into sexual abuse, historical clerical uh, sexual abuse uh, in Germany. And the assumptions that were drawn from that already were heavily criticized by experts, both Catholic and medical experts, because there were sort of foregone conclusions baked into the whole thing according to those critics. So it's not only just the process itself, it's also how it was set up. And this is something that Pope Francis in the letter in 2019 raised. This is something the critics have come up with uh, again and again, but it was not addressed. So the answer is we're not sure why it wasn't addressed. I guess, you know, there's, there's a, you know, the image of the can being kicked down the road sort of thing. There's something that's been kicked down the road. It's cost a lot of money and effort. Right. A lot of people had to be involved and a lot of justifications found to undo that. Again, there's the image of that source of apprentice. You know, you've unleashed Pandora's forces yeah. you cannot control. The, 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 you know, one of the most interesting questions around it, of course, then is how will this dovetail, can it dovetail with the Synod on Synodality or can it in fact jeopardize some of the things that have been brought about at that event, how will it affect Rome and you know the wider universal church? Well, I think we do expect that there will be a, a gathering in Rome soon at the Vatican of, of some of those involved, both the German bishops as, also, as well as the lay committee. And so we'll look forward to that. We'll, we'll be in touch with you on that to help bring us that reporting. Thank you for what you've reported now. Thank you. When we come back, we'll talk to the Register's Celine Tadier about women and the Catholic Church in medieval times. This is Register Radio on EWTN. Stay tuned for more. Sacrifice is a profound virtue Catholics can lovingly embrace, especially during Lent. But this year, why not also indulge in something good for your soul? Give yourself the gift of EWTN's National Catholic Register and stay connected to the latest developments and historical traditions of our Catholic faith. Save half off your subscription today. Get the National Catholic Register delivered to your home, office, or parish. Filled with spiritual insights on world events, along with compelling Catholic news and information. To get 50% off your subscription, order online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. The National Catholic Register. It's the one indulgence you won't ever want to give up. Call or click today to save half off. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director of the National Catholic Register and Catholic News Agency, and your host here on Register Radio. I'm joined by my co-host, Matthew Bunsen, who is EWTN News' Vice President and Editorial Director. And we've all heard the term, the pejorative expression, that it's so medieval, that's so medieval, to describe something old-fashioned or antiquated or primitive. You've probably heard it in connection with the church or maybe even related to traditional practices related to women or marriage. I can think of people who've said asking uh, a man, asking a father, a woman, a father for a woman's hand is, is so medieval, right? Well, the Register's Europe correspondent, uh, Solène Tadier, has debunked the bad rap 
on medieval times, especially when it relates to women and how they fared in the Middle Ages. And Selene Terrier joins us today. She is in Washington, uh, D.C. with Matthew and I in the EWTN. Let me say that again. Selene Tadier is with us in the Washington Bureau, at EWTN's Bureau here, with Matthew and me, and we are in the Guadalupe Radio Network, and very happy uh, to have you here, Selene. My pleasure. It's good to be here. In her first time in Washington, so it's, we, we have to show her, show her this um, amazing and city. And we put her to work in the studio. We put her to work in the studio, of course. But it's partially because there's this great story she recently wrote, a uh, fantastic story, Why Feminists Should Celebrate the Middle Ages and the Catholic Church. So, Selene, why did you choose this topic? It's a bit of a provocative title, but I think the stakes are, are high nowadays because there is a misconception of what is what means to be a woman. And, and sometimes I think the new waves of feminism don't understand their past well enough to promote a healthy way of treating women in a society to help them spread their full potential. And I think just to look back at our history and wh what it used to be like during the Middle Ages can promote a way better or a healthier relationship, a complementarity between male and, and female. And, and so, yeah, I think this kind of feminism, that aggressive neo-Marxist approach to feminism does a disservice to society as a whole, but most particularly to women because it denies their very nature, nature, their biological nature. And in the Middle Ages, they were so powerful without ever being denied and, you know, deprived of, of their very nature. And you have, have brought to light in this register story a scholar, a woman, uh, who had a tremendous life. I mean, she lived from the, the early 1900s until the 1990s, a, a huge span of time, a long life. Um, uh, I'm going to butcher this name, it's French, uh, Regine Pernou, mm -hmm. um, but I'd never heard of her before, and reading about her in your story, she really had to overcome intellectual and social bias in the, the work she did. Please tell us more about Regine. She was fantastic, and she, like you said, she lived in a very sensitive century, very ideologized century in the academic world. And, and, and she resisted uh, despite everything because she was so talented, incredibly smart, and no one could do anything against her because she was an archivist as well, historian. She wrote countless monographs. She was so, she, she was so prolific. And, and so even left-wing uh, newspapers would interview her all the time because she knew everything about all the great female characters in history. Uh, even the Académie Française uh, awarded her for her lifetime's uh, work. Uh, she was, you know, above all, a, a strong scholar. But then this also pushed her to embrace uh, new, th the, um, new theories about the dangers of neo-feminism, mm -hmm. that the, these, these currents that were spreading in the 20th century, and she was promoting a healthy return to the pre-patriarchate that was before the French Revolution, before the Renaissance, that was the best period for women to, to blossom. She resisted agendas, and there were so mm -hmm. many agendas in the 20th century when it came to women. And uh, tell me, tell us, how did she resist this? What, what, what did some of her, her scholarship uncover facts that she uncovered to resist some of these 
um, uh, ideology, as you said. So, so she she, she wrote dozens of, and dozens of books, but the book I really love, and that's the one I quote mostly in my article, is Women in the Times of the Cathedrals, in which she really focuses on the evolution of the role of women in society from the Roman Empire until present day. So, so it was in, in the 1980, if I, if I remember correctly, yes. Uh, and, and so basically she uh, she claimed that in, in feudal times, so between the 10th and the 13th century, that's when women had the, the, the best rights in history and they were like queens and powerful women and, and even women without any aristocracy like Joan of Arc, uh, St. Catherine of Siena, became so powerful and could f- fulfill their destiny because it was a, a time where, thanks to Christianity, they, they were trusted by men. Absolutely. One fact that uh, that you wrote about that really interests me was that in the early church uh, that she studied, uh, and she kind of numbered the, the number of saints who were men and the number of saints who were women, and women far outnumbered men. And in fact, she said that it was because of women that Christianity spread the way it did. And that just made me excited. And, and just thinking back to uh, to Mary Magdalene as as the evangelist to the eva- to the evangelists right mm-hmm. to the apostles and so um, really women have this this wonderful place Matthew did you want to step in yeah it's that, that that contrast that uh, Jeanette's talking about uh, the transformation of culture uh, as a result of Christianity because one of the, the complaints I know that you'll get is well what about the life of the average woman in the Middle Ages what was that like. So what is important, for instance, just a few examples, but women uh, in, in during these feudal times in the Middle Age were uh, be- became they were minors until twelve, uh, and so be- so and boys became uh, reached adulthood two years later. So women were considered that they have more 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 power, and so they were very active in the intellectual life. The every, all historians agreed on the fact that they were read more than men, and so so that's that's uh, that's also all these period that gave them a lot of strength and the opportunity to arise in the society, and that was a big contrast with ancient time that we tend to glorify nowadays. You know, this Roman law and Roman Empire, where women basically were eternal minors. And they become they became so until during Napoleon in the 19th century with the bourgeois value, they become eter- eternal miners again, and so that's the fact that I agree with those who criticize the 19th century, and I think it's a good thing to free our society from the dross of the 19th century and to go back to a more healthy approach of complementarity between men and women on this model of the Middle Ages, but of course with today's technology in today's world, but you know with these values. So how how did the Renaissance uh, kind of make us go backwards in a way? So there was this fascination for the Roman Empire and all of this literature, Roman law again. And in, during the Roman Empire, women were, like, fathers had a right of death and, la- and life over their, their daughters. So they had basically no rights at all. And it all changed with the rise of, uh, of the gospel and the, the, the spread of good news. And it changed everything. And, and during Renaissance, there was this decline of Christianity uh, among society. Then there was the crisis with the, ref- the Protestantism and everything. But, but yeah, so basically uh, the, the church lost, lost ground. And at the same time, there was this fascination, this return of, of this Roman Empire mentality. And that's when women gradually lost their power in universities. They were no longer 
uh, allowed to become doctors, uh, to study at universities. And, and so basically we see it as a, as a time of flight and after the darkness of the Middle Age. But what Régine Pernou shows is that the contrary happened for women. That's, uh, that's basically absolutely, this, and this part thing. of that is um, how we became so practical, so production-minded, so uh, driven in in many ways. That's how society became, and we lost a bit of this um, the grounding in the human person and the dignity of of each human person, right? And that's not something um, we think about. We think of rights, but we don't always think of the true dignity of every person, and they're not the same thing. Um, and so I think you're right. We have a long way uh, to recover um, this golden age and to really understand what it meant uh, to be a woman, uh, to have this complementarity in the Middle Ages, right? Um, and this is a great way, I think your, your story is a great way to to whet people's appetite, right, for this um, uh, this beautiful um, expression of femininity uh, in the Middle Ages. Tell us about some of the saints that she highlighted. So, of course, the, the example mentioned earlier was impressive for St. John of Arc and, and St. Catherine of Siena because they were no one. You know, they were they were born and they were meant to be Peasants. like, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. And, and they could fulfill an incredible destiny and they reached the, the, the pantheon of all the greatest women in, in the world. But you have also uh, Hildegard von Bingen, which is that, that is such an impressive model because she had a correspondence with all the most powerful men in the world at that time. And she had two uh, secretaries that were men, like monks, and she provided spiritual directions for for them. And she was so powerful, so knowledgeable, and she did not represent a threat for any, anybody, you know. So that was completely different time. Absolutely, it really was a, a very different time. I am I am so grateful that you and I share this fascination with what the church has offered. Um, humanity in understanding women and men, right, for our true dignity, um, our true complementarity, and our giftedness. So keep writing, Selene, on these <laughs> on these wonderful topics, please. I will, I will. And I want to point our listeners to her story on ncregister.com, Why Feminists Should Celebrate the Middle Ages and the Catholic Church. And you're listening to Register Radio, and you know that you can go to ncregister.com for a lot more news, analysis, and commentary. Thanks for joining us here on Register Radio on EWTN. For Matthew Bunsen and today's producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jeanette DeMello. Until next week, I pray God bless you.